are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 12 through 13, verses, um, uh, 13 chap- uh, verses 1 through 4. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time." The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, before we dive into that, um, 
three things I want to celebrate with you this morning. The first is, as Dusty mentioned in his prayer, uh, Jude Curtis was born this past week to Justin and Tracy, one of our pastors, and so that's something worth celebrating. Um, secondly, I want to celebrate that uh, in April, our giving, as you'll see on the slide behind me, was once again ahead of where we needed to be, and so we continue to be in a good place financially, and so I want to thank you guys for your stewardship and your continued ownership of the mission that God has given to Quorum Dale. Uh, the third thing I want to celebrate, and this might be, well, I don't know if it's the coolest of the three because they're all great, but um, you might be familiar over on Leavenworth and Park Avenue, there's a, a detestable place called Sherry's Show Club, an old strip club, uh, run-down, degraded a place that's uh, sort of a blight on that neighborhood. Uh, as of this past week, Christian Gray and his team at In Common have signed a lease to turn that into a community center for the Park Avenue neighborhood. Which is unbelievable. So, uh, no longer will that be a place of uh, wickedness and evil, but now uh, that place will become a place where, from which that community in Park Avenue can be served and developed and strengthened. And so Christian's message on my uh, voicemail on Friday when he called me was, hey, you know the kingdom of God is coming when strip clubs are being turned into community centers. And so that's good news for our city and uh, for the work that God's called us to do. So I want to celebrate that with uh, Christian and with his crew at In Common. Uh, we love the work that they do, and we're so glad to see God changing neighborhoods and changing even the face of the geography of the parts of the city that we walk in and work in. So that's exciting. Um, let's get to work in the book of Revelation this morning. We have a lot to do. Uh, everybody agrees that chapters 12 and 13 are the key chapters in the book of Revelation because uh, in these chapters, God pulls back the curtain of history, as it were, and begins to show us and reveal to us this great cosmic drama that is underneath all of time and history. Uh, it was President Bush in 2002 who gave this title, The Axis of Evil, to the countries of Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Uh, in these chapters of the Bible, we, we meet the biblical axis of evil. It's composed of three figures, the dragon in Revelation chapter 12, the beast who comes out of the sea in Revelation 13, and a beast from the earth who is also later on in Revelation called the false prophet. We meet that beast at the end of chapter 13. And so what you're going to see in the next two weeks is that these three figures form, as it were, a counterfeit trinity. Uh, the dragon tries to usurp the authority and the power of God the Father. Uh, the beast from the sea is a counterfeit savior a false Jesus, if you will. And the false prophet is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. So just as the Holy Spirit exists to exalt and glorify the Lord Jesus, the beast from the earth exists to glorify the beast from the sea, this counterfeit Savior. And so I'm just telling you that so you'll know what to look for and why John is developing these three symbols. He wants you to see very clearly that just as there is a triune God, there is a counterfeiting of the functions and the, the glory and the, the, the abilities of that triune God by evil and specifically by Satan. And so you'll see that as we go forward in these next couple of weeks. Now, I've been telling you throughout the series on Revelation that John borrows his images and metaphors straight from the pages of the Old Testament. Which makes sense because Revelation is the last book in 
the canon of Scripture. It is bringing to a close the biblical storyline. It's summing up and concluding the narrative that began in the book of Genesis. And so, in order for you to grasp the fullness of Revelation 12, I need to take you back to two very important points in that biblical storyline, two points which are explicitly referred to in Revelation 12. And so we're going to go to Genesis 3 and to Psalm 2, if you have a Bible, all right? All the way back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, as you know, uh, it doesn't take us very long to mess up what God has made. So Genesis tells us God created the world, He created it good, He placed man in the garden, He made a helper for her called woman, He married them, told them to be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve are first parents, sinned against God. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we have God coming in response to their sin and, and proclaiming, declaring curses, uh, cursing the world and cursing them as consequence for their sin. In chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 14, God begins this cursing by speaking to the serpent, the one who had deceived Adam and Eve. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A theologian's Note that Genesis 3 is the very first proclamation or declaration of the gospel in all of Scripture. I want you to look again with me at that text. God's curse to the serpent is, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring or your offspring and her offspring. And so in a sense, this curse is just there's going to be conflict. But notice the pronoun that exists in the next phrase, he shall bruise your head. He, one particular individual that will be an offspring of the woman, will deliver a fatal blow to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. Okay, this is announcing in symbolic language the victory that Jesus Christ would win for his people as the offspring of the woman. And it's also telling us that throughout history, until Jesus comes and brings new heaven and new earth, there's going to be conflict, disagreement, tension, enmity between the serpent and humanity. Okay? So keep that in mind, and then flip to Psalm chapter 2. Psalms 1 and 2 are set up as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. They form, as it were, the introduction... The last five psalms are a conclusion, and then all the rest of the psalms are in between. And so in Psalm chapter 1, you have this statement of the blessedness of a life lived under God and for His glory. And in Psalm chapter 2, the second psalm is a statement, a declaration, a proclamation of God's reign and God's rule over history, His sovereignty over everything, and specifically, His rule through His Anointed. Look with me at Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Mashiach, His 
Messiah, His Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. All right, when the Apostle John uses the language of the only begotten, he's intentionally referencing the language of Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Maybe you grew up in a church where you sang that at missions conference, right? Oh, Lord, give us the nations as our possession. And you didn't sing the next verse, I guarantee. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All right, so this is very much speaking of the nations of the earth being God's inheritance. It's very much speaking of the gospel being proclaimed to the nations, but more specifically, it's declaring the fact that God's anointed, God's Messiah, is going to rule over all the nations, all the kings, all the authorities, all the powers in all the earth. He will be victorious and will rule and reign over everything. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Genesis 3 and Psalm 2 are very, very significant in the canon of the Old Testament. Of course, all of the Bible is inspired by God and all of it is important and significant for us, but there are specific places in the Old Testament where the rabbis and the Jewish people and the Christians after them recognize something very, very important is being said right here. Genesis 3.15 is one of those places. Psalm chapter 2 is one of those places. And so, as we come now to Revelation chapter 12, what you're going to see is that John the Apostle, who's writing the book of Revelation, is going to retell the story, the drama of redemptive history. He's, in a sense, retelling you the history of the world from Genesis forward in one chapter, and he's going to make specific reference to these texts. And so let's Look, and let's try to engage John's language, which you'll recall is symbolic, and so he's going to use images and metaphors to help us see and think about uh, what he has to say. Revelation 12, verse 1, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, who is this woman? Well, if you think about in Scripture, who is always referred to as a woman... It's the people of God. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people of Israel and the church are called God's bride, right? The bride of Christ. If you look at the language in the Old Testament, it's always female when God is referring to his people, that he is their husband and they are his wife. This reference of the moon, the sun, and the stars is a direct reference to the dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37 that's specifically about God's people, all right? So this woman is the people of God. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems or crowns. 
Who is this dragon? As you will see later on in verse 9, it's very explicit. Verse 9 says, this dragon is also called the devil and or Satan. His tail, verse 4, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Remember Genesis 3, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, who is that speaking of? The Lord Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, so in this one verse you have Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which we just professed in the Heidelberg Catechism. All of that is captured in this one phrase of him, she giving birth, he being caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, so John, very simply, in those six verses, just recounting for you in symbolic language, the sweep of the drama of redemptive history. There is a woman who is going to give birth to a child. There is a dragon who is going to try to destroy that child. The woman gives birth. The child is caught up to God. The dragon makes war on her offspring. She is protected by God. Now, starting in verse 7, same story told from a different perspective. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This is speaking of Satan's rebellion against God. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So first of all, I just want you to see, we're not talking, this is not yin and yang, right? This is not Satan versus God. They're equal powers. One might win, one might lose, okay? The devil is thrown down, beaten, vanquished, conquered. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. If you look at the description of how it is that Satan is thrown down here, it is evident that this is not merely referring to the very first rebellion when Satan rebelled against God, but it is speaking of the whole sweep of redemptive history, including the work that Jesus did on the cross and the work that we do in suffering and proclaiming the gospel, that all of that is the means by which Satan is defeated, destroyed, thrown down. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, metaphorically, symbolically, you'll notice, remember, all of this language we've seen in Revelation about mouth, tongue, speech. This is again describing the fact that the primary way that Satan seeks to conquer and destroy God and God's kingdom and God's people is through lies, accusations, deceptions, falsehood, false teachers, evil, 
and such. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. Right? So, you see th- three themes in this, in this retelling of the story of redemptive history. Here's the themes you see. Number one, Satan rebelled and was thrown out of heaven. Number two, Satan has always sought to destroy God's people and especially to destroy Jesus. And number three, Satan will continue to make war against God's people until the very end. Okay? Satan has always been opposed to the purposes of God. Satan has always been seeking to destroy God and his people and especially his Messiah, and Satan will continue to fight against the purposes of God until the very end of time when he is fully and finally defeated. So, until the end of time, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. All right? Here's the big idea. Here's what you need to see. Life is war. Okay? Life is war. And the hard reality is this. Even as we were praying this week about this text, the hard reality is this. Some of you just don't believe that. Some of you just do not believe that you are living in a cosmic struggle between God and the kingdom of darkness, and that that is the stage on which you live your life and in which you exist. C.S. Lewis, of course, was one of the most insightful writers of the past Century, and he wrote an excellent book on spiritual battle called The Screwtape Letters, which many of you may have read. Uh, it's, a, it's a dialogue between a younger demon, a junior demon, and a senior demon, one who is uh, counseling and sort of mentoring this young demon. And the younger demon asks, you know, should I try to keep my subject, this Christian who I'm sort of persecuting, should I try to keep him ignorant of my existence? Here is the advice given by the mentor demon. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. That's exactly where some of you are at. Some of you hear language of Satan, demons, spiritual warfare, and you think comic book, red tights, devil on your shoulder. And so you just go, no, no, none of that is true. And I would just suggest to you, if, if that's the case, then you're playing right into the strategy of the enemy. Uh, the fact is you have no idea the war that you are in. And if your eyes will begin to be open to the war that you are in, it will change how you think and how you live and how you relate. So I have a friend who is a part of this church. Um, I think it would be fair to say he is a uh, recovering in the process of redemption um, from, from some deep sexual addiction. And uh, so he's seeking to walk with Jesus and try to be restored from that and be redeemed and walk in obedience and uh, he told me a few months ago, uh, he ordered a pizza. And he went to the restaurant, which was a bar and grill down the street from his house, and walked in to get the pizza, pay the money, turn around and walk out. 
as he's at the bar getting the pizza, there's a woman down the bar, has a wedding ring on her finger, a little older than him, strikes up a conversation. Hey, don't I know you from so-and-so? And he's like, oh yeah, I know that person. And so kind of politely responds. Ten minutes later, that woman is following him out of the bar and propositioning him. He's trying to eat a pizza. Now, some of you guys are going, that's never happened to me when I order a pizza, right? Exactly. That's my point. Do you think it could be that Satan, who is an enemy of what is good, knows that man's particular weaknesses and is setting up a temptation that's just perfect for the area where he's going to be prone to fail? I have another friend who's, who's recently come out of a, a life that was far from God and is experiencing great redemption. And this past week, on Wednesday night, he was going to stand up and sort of tell his story, bear his soul, talk about the work that God had done in his life, where he was in the past, and where God has brought him. And he was a little bit nervous about it, and, but, but he, he said, you know what, this is me telling my story is a chance to give glory to God and to honor Him. And so he's getting ready to tell his story on Wednesday phone call on Tuesday. Hey, this is kind of weird, but I've been having a lot of suicidal thoughts today. And I wouldn't do that. I don't, I don't think I would do that, but I just want you to pray for me and I want you to know that, that like, that's going on and it's troubling me. Again, maybe that's just coincidental, but maybe not. Maybe there is an enemy who's out to steal kill and destroy and maybe that would make a lot of sense if you knew this guy's story you are in a war if you are a christian if you belong to god if you are a part of the people of god there is an enemy who is out to destroy jesus to destroy the kingdom of god and to destroy you and you need to start living with that in mind uh, in the midst of World War II, the United States War Production Board published the following declaration in uh, newspapers across the country. This is April of 1942. An additional six million tons of scrap iron and steel must be obtained promptly. We are collecting every possible pound from the factories, arsenals, and shipyards. We are speeding up the flow of material from automobile graveyards. We are tearing up abandoned railroad tracks and bridges, but unless we dig out an additional six million tons of steel and great quantities of rubber, copper, brass, zinc, and tin, our boys may not get all the fighting weapons they need in time. Even one old shovel will help make four hand grenades. See, if you're living in wartime, you don't keep extra shovels in the garage because we need them. When you're in a war, you live differently. You think differently about life and about what you have and about how you live. And so let me ask you some questions. How would your missional community be different if you showed up this week knowing that Satan is at war for people's souls? Would that change how you engage a missional community? How would our Wednesday night prayer meeting be different if you really believe that we are at war against a powerful spiritual enemy who wants to destroy God's kingdom and God's people? 
Would you pray differently? Would your reading of the Bible be different if you knew that this week you were going to face a powerful temptation and you were going to need Bible verses in your head at that moment to help you sustain and walk in obedience in the midst of that temptation? Would you read the Bible with a little more intensity? If you fear God, Satan is intent on making war against you. And listen to me. I know we live in a culture where this is sort of abnormal to talk about, but listen, this is the consistent witness of the Bible. This is not just revelation. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you've never seen the movie The Ghost and the Darkness, I encourage you to go watch it this week with 1 Peter 5.8 in mind. It will change how you think about lions and their propensity to devour. Ephesians 6.11 and 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The consistent witness of Scripture is, look, you're in a war. You're in a fight. You have an enemy. Your enemy is spiritual, not physical, not tangible, not flesh and blood. There is a spiritual war on. And so you better be aware of that and you better live as though that's the case. And so I thought this morning, one of the best ways I could help you is just to give you some practical help in engaging that battle. And so I want to introduce you to one of my favorite writers of all time, Richard Lovelace, who is a Princeton-educated theologian. I believe he's now dead. But he wrote a book in 1979 called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. I think it is one of the best books written in the last century. It is perhaps, well, significantly one of the most helpful books written in the last century if you're a Christian trying to figure out how do I walk with Jesus and what does it mean to walk with Jesus. And so using Richard Lovelace's language and categories, I want to basically take from him in order to help you. And so Lovelace, at one point in this book, lists what he says, according to Scripture, are five characteristic strategies of Satan. So here's my concern. It's one thing to say you're in a war, and you need to be aware that you're in a war and that there's spiritual battle. But, but then as soon as we say that, people go in one of two directions. Either sort of like, I'm not sure about all that, so I don't, I don't really want to think about that very much. So I'll assent to it mentally, but really not spend much time thinking about the implications of that. Or people go in the direction of like, deliverance ministry, we need to cast out some demons, we need to exercise the demon who lives in you because you wanted to eat a candy bar last night and that would have broke your diet. And I mean, people just do weird, funky, strange things. And so what I like about Richard Lovelace is he, he believes the scriptures and he's wise. And so he wants to help you see here are the five characteristic strategies of Satan that you may experience in your life and the lives of others. And so you just need to know them. So let me introduce you to them. The first is temptation. Here is 
what Richard Lovelace has to say. Temptation is largely misunderstood as the efforts of demonic agents to entice believers into isolated acts of serious sin. The Bible does contain instances of this sort of temptation. But most commonly, temptation is directed toward larger ends. Involving believers in whole ways of life or patterns of behavior which are sub-Christian which will extinguish their spirituality and make them negative witnesses, or luring them into adopting outlooks which excuse or justify sin and which may almost totally obscure their faith. Lovelace says, if you want to be honest about temptation, don't look for Satan's trying to get me to do this particular sin. Look at what are the ways I justify and excuse my sin. Secondly, deception. Satan deceives the whole world through the activity of lying spirits. Fallen angels are called powers of darkness, not because they are in any way creatures of the night or linked to the common superstitious fear of the dark, but because they are permanent dwellers in a world of lies and ignorance. Living in a mental universe of lies, they persuade men to keep on embracing lies concerning God themselves, and the world, reinforcing the natural affinity of the flesh for darkness. One of Satan's characteristic strategies is just deception, keeping you thinking falsely. And so listen, this is why we're consistently, relentlessly saying, look, you've got to know your Bible, because not just because knowing your Bible is a good discipline, because Bible equals truth. Right? And Satan's primary strategy is to lie to you, to get you to believe things that are false. And so if you don't know what is true, and you can't apply what is true to where you're believing what is not true, then, then you're unable to effectively engage in sanctification and spiritual warfare and walking with Jesus. Number three, accusation. Loveless says, the word Devil means slanderer. And Satan is described as the one who accuses believers continually in the presence of God. Demonic agents are particularly active in, now catch this, dividing Christians from one another into parties, subtly reinforcing stereotypes in the minds of believers who are not on guard against this, magnifying weaknesses and minimizing virtues to produce divisive caricatures. Okay, so if you're one of those people that you, you see all the good in yourself and all the bad in someone else, you need to step back and go, okay, that, that's satanic. That's a characteristic strategy of Satan to divide people, to create hostility, division, dissension, factions. Also, satanic forces attack Christians directly in their own minds with disturbingly accurate accounts of their faults seeking to discourage those who are most eager and able to work for the kingdom. I have a friend who a few years ago was wrestling deeply with depression. And so my wife and I invited her over and we sat down in our living room and just said, hey, let's see if we can help you and counsel you and pray for you. What's, what's going on? She said, well, I, I think my depression is related to just a really negative self-image. I mean, I just... I think poorly of myself. Uh, I'm not a very good Christian. Sometimes I doubt whether God has forgiven my sin at all, whether I'm really beloved of Him, whether I'm really His child. Uh, 
I just doubt all of these things. And so I said, well, let's, let's talk more about that. What, is that. what does that sound like when you have those doubts? Talk me through your thought pattern. She said, well, I, I just start thinking things like, you're such a failure. God doesn't love you. There's no way that Christ could ever embrace you as his daughter. And I said, how do you talk to yourself when you need to do the laundry? She said, what do you mean? I said, when you need to do laundry, what do you say to yourself? She said, well, I say, I need to do the laundry. I said, right, right. You talk to yourself in the first person. All the things you just described were in the second person. You, you, you. Those aren't coming from you. That's someone else talking to you. If what goes in your mind is, you're such a... If you thought you were a failure, you'd say, I'm such a failure. If what you hear in your head is, you're such a failure, who's talking to you? Satan. Now, you can believe that. You can embrace that. You can live in that. But that's classic, satanic accusation. And a lot of you guys here this morning are living in that world. And just acknowledging that, and recognizing that's not you talking to yourself will go a long way in combating that. The fourth strategy that Loveless mentions is possession. He says the Gospels plainly describe a condition in which human victims come almost helplessly under control of alien personalities. Now this one is certainly less common, uh, but if you read your Bible, you can't get away from the fact that it's real. And if you doubt that it's real in our time, I can introduce you to some people who would change your mind about that. Fifth, physical attack. Demonic agents can occasionally cause illness, at least psychological and neurological ailments like dumbness and epilepsy. Matthew 9, Matthew 17 are two occasions where people have these conditions and it's demonic. It is frequently claimed by demythologizers that the whole biblical treatment of the demonic is just a pre-scientific way of describing mental and physical illness. But, the demonized are usually a separate category from the diseased of the Gospels, and the presence of alternate personalities among them argues decisively against this. Okay, you need to know, not every mental illness, not every physical illness is satanic, but some can be. And so you need to have wise spiritual pathology. You need to seek out pastors and counselors who know the difference, who can understand the differences between, no, you just have a chemical imbalance, and no, you're depressed because of satanic accusation. They're different, but they both exist. And so you can't make the mistake of saying, everyone who has a mental illness is demonized, but neither can you make the mistake of saying, there's no such thing as demons. There's a breadth and a fullness to what can happen in people. Physical ailments, mental ailments, spiritual ailments, demonic attack, and it takes wisdom to sort them out. By the grace of God, we have people that are part of this church and a part of our broader network who are adept and skilled in this way. And if you need help here, I encourage you to talk to me. So these are Lovelace's five characteristic strategies of Satan. Temptation, deception, accusation, possession, physical attack. Five classic ways that Satan seeks to destroy, subvert, and hinder the work of God. So here's the question. How do we fight back? 
Right? What are we to do? Now that we have our eyes open to the war, now that we have our eyes open to characteristic strategies that Satan uses, what do we do? There are two wrong responses. Uh, the first wrong response is anxiety and fear. Some of you guys are just really fearful of Satan, demons, anything dark and demonic. You have sort of an unhealthy anxiety and fear, and so it, it sort of dominates your thinking, and you're afraid of it. And listen to me, that's not a gospel response. Okay, that's, that's being driven by some kind of sin or idolatry in you because Scripture is clear that you have, if you are in Christ, you have victory over Satan and over demons and over the demonic. You don't need to live in fear or anxiety or trepidation. You, you can live very much in confidence and strength. So fear and anxiety is not the right response. The second false response is apathy and cynicism. Okay, again, where you just sort of fall into like, well, I don't know, that seems real shady, I'm not sure about all that, so I'm just going to assume that that's probably not true. I'm going to sort of be a demythologizer, as Lovelace says, and say, well, all that stuff in the Bible must have just been their pre-scientific way of dealing with strange things that now we know are scientific. If you fall into that strategy, you're buying into classic temptation and deception, right? You've already, he's already won the battle. So those are two bad, false, wrong responses. The right response, how we fight back, is given to us in James chapter 4, verse 7. It's very simple. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist to the devil, and he will flee from you. So I want you to notice there's, there's two pieces. Submit, therefore, to God. The first reality is you must be submitted to God. You must live under His authority. You must be a follower, a worshiper of God. Your heart, your soul, your disposition, your will must be submitted. Bob Dylan said you got to serve someone. Okay, The best way to not serve Satan is to serve God, to be submitted to God. So once you've submitted to God and to the provision God has made in Christ... Resist the devil. And it says he will flee from you. Right? You actually can resist. And so if I were to frame this out a little more fully for you in light of the gospel, it would be this. Renounce, resist, and rest. Three R words. Renounce. First, re- renounce meaning there needs to be a decisive coming to faith, a, denice, a decisive renouncing of Satan's work in your life. And so one of the wise sort of spiritual counselors that we, work, that we work with says, listen, I don't care if you grew up a Christian, if you were converted a long time ago, when someone's dealing with demonic activity, I want them to renounce Satan right now verbally out loud. If you have ever been at a Coromdale baptism, we recite the Apostles' Creed, and then we ask the person being baptized, do you trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? The second question we ask, going all the way back to the church fathers, is do you renounce Satan in all his works and all his ways? It's just an acknowledgement that being baptized is being brought into a new kingdom. It's a turning your back on. It's a renouncing of Satan. Okay, so don't hear me saying you need to talk to demons in your house. That's not what, what I'm saying is there needs to be a decisive turning point in your life where you have renounced Satan and his works and where you've followed Jesus in his ways. Then you resist, and that resistance primarily looks like resting. See, you don't fight Satan. Jesus fights Satan. Jesus has already beaten Satan. 
you rest in the victory that Jesus has won. You saturate your mind in the truth that Jesus has spoken. You rest secure in the identity that Jesus has given you in his death and resurrection and victory over Satan. The resistance looks like resting. It doesn't look like trying to figure out how you're going to beat Satan tomorrow and what you're going to do if he tempts you. It means being aware and resting in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Now that resting is not passive, it's active. It means you need to know your Bible. You need to know the promises of the gospel. You need to be in community where people can help you and encourage you and continue to be obedient to Jesus. It's an active resting, not a passive resting. But it's rest. There's no anxiety. There's no struggle. There's no, I hope you beat Satan tomorrow because he's pretty strong. You better pray hard today. Okay? Just resting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. As you continue to encounter the book of Revelation, you can't miss the fact You saw it already in chapter 12 that Satan is a defeated enemy. Satan's already been defeated through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so you have nothing to fear. Renounce him, resist him, and rest in what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Even as I preach this morning, God, I can't shake the culture that we live in and the fact that I just anticipate that some people will will have a hard time engaging and believing and taking at face value the teaching of Scripture about these realities. And so I pray that you would work against our cynicism and our modernism and that you would awaken us to the deep realities and truths that Scripture has taught. God, I pray for my friends here this morning that you would deliver them from the accusations, the lies, the deception, the temptation of the enemy. I pray they would see with new eyes the ways that Satan is active and that their eyes would be open to the particular ways in each of their lives that Satan is exercising influence and power and that they would then be awakened to what it looks like to resist him and to rest in the work that you have done to conquer him. Thank you, Jesus, that we do not fight Satan in our own power, that we do not have to muster up some kind of courage or some kind of spiritual wisdom, but that rather you have done everything that needs to be done. And we need simply rest in your victory, in the conquering work that you did, in your death, resurrection, and ascension, and that as we read Psalm 2, that you will rule the nations with a rod of iron. We are encouraged in the promise that you rule over Satan, that there's nothing left to do, And we need merely to rest in the good of what you've already done. So God, this morning, as we take communion and as we worship, let us do it with a newfound sense of freedom and joy because of the victory that you have guaranteed over all of our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.